This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, The Role of Devotion on the Mystical Path, recorded March 26, 2000, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So the topic this morning is, what is the role of devotion on a mystical path? Another one of these enormous topics, which we will try to shed some light on in the limited amount of time we have here. But first of all, let's uh, very briefly uh, review what a mystical path is all about, where it's going, so that we can then see what role devotion would have on it. And the universal testimony of the mystics is actually quite simple. It's that you, I, we, all are the ultimate reality, the ground, the foundation of this cosmos. That is our true nature. Our true nature is unborn and never dies. Our true nature has no limits, no boundaries, no ends. It's infinite. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I and the Father am one. No difference. I and the Father am one. The Hindus traditionally put it this way. They say, Atman is Brahman. Atman meaning your true self, not your ego self, is actually Brahman, the ultimate reality. So this slogan echoes down to us from the Upanishads, the classics of Hindu mysticism. That thou art. You are that. The Sufis say, and they're the mystics of Islam, whoso knoweth himself knoweth his Lord. If you know who you are, truly who you are, then you know God. No difference. And the Buddhists say, as Waining, one of the famous Zen masters, put it, your very self-nature is the Buddha. And apart from that, there is no other Buddha. And then one step down from this way of saying it very directly, you find teachings in all the mystical traditions about where to look for God. Look within yourself. Look within your heart. And Jesus said, you know, where is the kingdom of God? It won't come by expectation. Don't look there and don't look here. But the kingdom of God is within. Lali Shori, a great Hindu mystic, she said exactly the same thing. Don't go looking for Shiva, was the Hindu name of God, out there in the world. Shiva lives in your heart. Go live in your heart. Rabia, a great Sufi mystic, said the same thing. Wake up the heart. That's the real work. Because when the heart is fully awake, there is no need for a friend, meaning something other. The friend is a, with a capital F, is the, one of the Sufi terms for God. So the whole mystical path is about turning inward looking for the ultimate truth, the ultimate reality within ourselves.
Now, if this is the truth, which all mystics, by the way, tell us, don't just take our word for it. You have to go look and find out for yourself. But if this is the truth, then we ask the question, well, why don't we just all know it? And the answer mystics give, and this you can test immediately in your own experience, is because you think you're something else. And each one of us has a slightly different way we think we're something else. But we think we are limited, finite, born, going to die. Whatever your particular individual view of who you are, an ego, a psyche, a spirit, a soul, whatever... We just don't see it. We don't see the truth. And it's not only that we just think we are something else, at the intellectual level, we are deeply convinced we are something else. And the mystics put it this way, we all suffer from a delusion, a kind of a hallucination. We literally see other things as being separate from us. We see other people as being separate from us. We see stones as being separate from us. We don't see that we are the ground of all this that is arising, and in fact, all this in that sense is a manifestation of who we truly are. At the perceptual level. So this is a very deep delusion goes right to the root of our uh, whole consciousness. So when mystics say we have to turn inward, they're saying we have to examine then why we think we are separate, why we see ourselves as separate, why we feel ourselves as, as separate, why we experience ourselves as individual entities, limited, finite cut off. We have to examine this for ourselves. Gershom Sholem, a great Kabbalist scholar, the Kabbalist of the mystics of Judaism, summed up the whole Kabbalist path by saying it's a question of going inward and lifting the barriers, lifting the veils, until we come to realize there's nothing but God. Nothing but God. All this is a manifestation of God. And the last part of this little equation here, or the last question we could ask is, well, so what? So what if I'm the ultimate reality? So what if I'm not who I think I am? I'm doing pretty good in my life. And perhaps the most outrageous claim the mystics say is all our suffering arises from this delusion. The reason to do it is not just intellectual curiosity, although you might have a strong streak of intellectual curiosity and that might carry you a good way uh, down the path to know really who you are, what's this all about, why am I here, all those sorts of questions, where am I going, where did I come from, you know, great class of questions human beings have asked themselves since the beginning of time. 
But perhaps even more importantly is, why do I suffer? What is the cause of my suffering? Is there really an end to suffering? Well, that might be something worth checking out. Our fears about dying, for instance, are unfounded if what the mystics say is true. Well, no question about things are impermanent. This phenomenon that arises is impermanent. It's all impermanent. It's always arising, passing away. No big deal. In that sense, everything is being born, dying in every moment. But we somehow feel we're going to die. But if we are that ground of all this, that's unborn and undying, oh, it's not that big a deal anymore. And then all the, all the fears that are based on that fear, fear for your health, fear for your wealth, your security, your youth, all those kinds of things. For most of us, really, the, the, the root fear and the root suffering is death. The closer we get to death, the less important other things than what used to be very important to us are. So it kind of tells us, it gives us a clue there. So, that's what the mystical path is all about. It's examining who we think we are, who we believe we are, how we experience life now, and seeing, is this true? And either slowly or quickly, discovering, no, it's not true. And as we discover, oh, it's not true, a little veil lifts, and we get a little flash of reality, of truth. And that encourages us to go on, and we go deeper, and another veil lifts. Something drops away, some attachment, something we've been holding on to, because we no longer see that it's important. And that's generally how a spiritual path progresses. It can take a long time. In the Eastern traditions, where they believe in reincarnation stuff, they talk about taking lifetimes and lifetimes. It can happen like that. There's a fellow alive today, an Australian. Name is it John Ren Lewis? Do you remember his first name? John Ren Lewis, who was on a bus in Thailand, a tourist visiting Thailand, and somebody poisoned him. This little scheme the thieves have there—they offer you a piece of candy or something that's laced with poison, and then you keel over and they grab your wallet, and nobody notices. They just think you've fallen asleep on the bus. Fortunately. Uh, he keeled over, but he was with his uh, partner, and she got him to a hospital, and he was clinically dead, but they revived him. And when he came back, he was just enlightened. <laughs> <coughs> Never did a, you know, any sort of practice in his life. Something about going through the gate of death, he saw something there. He doesn't even know what it was. He doesn't have any memory of that particular moment. All he knows is he woke up, and... Huh? Oh, he said, oh, this is what the mystics have been talking about. <laughs> My gosh, it's true. <laughs> but it is true. Everybody's path is going to be different. Everybody's path is going to be different in actually what they go through and the time it takes and all those sorts of things. 
And I'll just say one last thing about this before we move on. Don't be uh, so envious of John Wren Lewis and don't be in such a hurry. Because first of all, the path itself is fun, usually. And second of all, uh, if you're going to be any use to anybody else, you have to uh, learn these practices and so forth. You'll have to do it afterwards. There's a famous uh, Tibetan uh, Buddhist who also was awakened spontaneously. And when people would come and ask him for teachings, he would say, don't ask me. I'm a guy who got to the roof without taking the stairs. So I can't direct you up the stairs. So whatever you are experiencing on a spiritual path, even and especially perhaps the hard times, is going to be useful, useful for others. And of course, to be awake is to realize there are no others. And the paradox of that is because there are no others, then it's very important that everybody wakes up. There is no no person who is suffering, but there is still suffering in the world. And then we run into problems with language, but we say all suffering is your suffering. Just not personal, so it's a difference. But it is still your suffering. So then how do we uh how do we proceed here? Well, traditionally, particularly in the Hindu tradition, and they have the nomenclature for it, so I'm going to use their nomenclature. We could say there are two major subpaths. And that is what they call Janana, the path of Janana, which means knowledge, not intellectual knowledge, but uh, this uh, knowledge that is beyond thought, and Bhakti, the path of devotion or love. And if you look at other traditions, they don't have those words, but you still find that there are these two ends of really of a spectrum, is a better way to look at it, because they aren't distinct. Uh, there, there are two extremes of a spectrum, and people on a spiritual path move back and forth between these poles. Sometimes the, the emphasis uh, in your path can be very uh, bhakti, very devotional. Sometimes it can be much more analytical and uh, a path of inquiry. Some people's temperaments uh, stamp their path with a certain emphasis. But these aren't really totally distinct. But even when we talk about two subpaths, the path of knowledge, Janana, the path of bhakti, devotion, or love, we have to realize that Actually, whatever path you are on, whatever practices you are doing, if we take devotion in the broadest meaning of the word, the path requires devotion. If you are a janani, if you are drawn to a more analytic approach that is examining, uh, you know, in a very close way the obstacles, that hide the truth, in order to really do that, to take the time and the effort and the concentration to do that, you have to be devoted to truth, completely devoted to the truth. My main in-flesh teacher, Dr. Wolf, was a very much of a Janani. And yet he wrote about his devotion to the truth. And he lived his devotion to the truth. 
He was a brilliant young student. He went to Stanford and he went to Harvard. This was in 1910. Hard to get in. And he got in on scholarships and so forth. And he had a brilliant academic career in front of him. And he gave it up because at that time he saw in the uh, university setting he could not pursue mystical truth. I think it's much easier today. Remember, this was 1910, 1911. This was all uh, we stuff, you know, superstition and whatnot. So he gave up that career. That's devotion in order to pursue truth. And he pursued truth for 29 years. He had a relatively long path, especially if we're thinking about it in terms of one lifetime, or 24 years, depending on different counts here. There's a Hindu story that applies regardless if you are a Janani or a Bhakti, and it's about a guru, and a famous guru, renowned guru, and a disciple comes and says, I... I'm ready to go on a spiritual path. And I, I've heard your reputation and I really want to be your disciple. Will you give me initiation? And the guru looks and says, come with me. And they go over to this river there. And the disciple thinks, oh, he's going to get initiated. This is the initiation. You know, it's a holy river and so forth. And so the guru walks in the river. The disciple follows him to the river. And suddenly the guru turns around and he grabs him. And he holds his head underwater a long time. And the guy starts, bubbles coming out of his mouth, you know, like a great scene in a movie. <laughs> Finally, he lets go. And, uh, 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 the disciple comes to the surface, gasping for air. <laughs> and the girl says, when you want to know the truth, as much as you wanted that breath of air, then come back and see me. And it's an example about the importance of devotion on a spiritual path. Devotion taking in this broadest meaning of dedicating your life to it, making it a priority in your life. Now, I don't want to scare anybody off. There may be some of you in this room that don't feel that uh, devotion at this time. They don't think, oh, well, then a mystical path isn't for me. We all start from where we are. But if you are moving forward on a mystical path, it becomes more important in your life. It becomes more important because you start to discover things yourself that start to change your life for the better. Sometimes it appears for the worse. I mean, we go through periods on a spiritual path where everything seems to be getting worse. But in a little bit longer view, for the better. We really can gain some measure of freedom from this delusion of self, some measure of freedom from our suffering on the way. And then that motivates us to go farther, to go deeper. But when we talk about bhakti or devotion as a subpath, we are talking about something a little bit more restricted here. We're usually talking about a set of practices and a certain attitude that is based on adopting a temporary view of the ultimate reality. And that is usually put in terms of some form of God. And this isn't just arbitrary. It comes out of our experience. People 
in general, human beings have some notion, some sense that there is something out there greater than they are that makes all this make sense. We know somewhere. And then our minds, of course, want to conceptualize things and think of gods and we give God characteristics and all that, and that's fine. And what mystics say is, yes, that's fine. The instinct in that is, is you're absolutely right. We run into trouble when we superimpose on an infinite, unlimited, unconditioned reality limits and conditions. That's our projection, you know. So uh, then we say, well, what is God like? God is like a, a great a father or a mother who just loves you and has this power and so forth. That's just a poetic image. But then we like that we seize on that. Oh, God is actually a mother or a father, sort of a super daddy or super mommy. And we get into trouble sometimes with that, especially when we think of it as the father over here and they think it was the mother over there and then they must be wrong. Mystics understand from the get-go that these, as the Sufis say, that what we attribute to God is our attribution. And God, in their terms, allows us to do that for our benefit. But it doesn't in any way limit or define that ultimate reality. But the benefit is that we have a focus for practice. We have a focus for practice at the very uh, most pragmatic level as prayer, something to direct your attention to. For worship, worship means to be turned to, towards what is most worthy, to be orientated towards what is most worthy. A prayer, a true prayer, is just like the meditation we did this morning where we concentrate on the breath, but you concentrate on this image of God. Recognizing, if you're on a mystical path, recognizing that that image is not the divine, it's sort of a reflection of the divine. Something that will give you something to focus on. Then you can work with that image at a very practical level. You can Create that image in your heart, starting at the physical level of the heart. And when you focus your attention in your heart, it tends to take you away from your mind and all those chit-chat thoughts and so forth. These are just the beginning steps of a, of a prayer practice, a devotional prayer practice. Now, interesting thing about a devotional practice, and by the way, let me say one other thing here first. The difference of this kind of prayer and uh, prayer perhaps that you were taught as a child and that a lot of people who are so-called religious people do is just by rote, mechanical. So they're actually thinking about other things. So maybe you're a Christian and you're saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, you've said this since you were can before you can remember and you can just say it and your mind is thinking, Oh my gosh, I got a I got the car payment next week. Now I'm a little short of cash. I mean you know, that is not, I mean, <laughs> this is the point. You're not using it in a mystical way if you're praying that way. In Islam, Abdullah's not here today, it's too bad. In Islam, uh, they do prayer five times a day. But intention is everything, as I've been learning from Abdullah. 
if you don't have the intention as you're praying, it don't count. <laughs> and in an exoteric way of believing, it means when you show up on Judgment Day, all those prayers, you know, just mumbo-jumbo, they're not going to count. So it's very important to have the intention. This insistence on the intention is a spiritual truth. The prayer is only uh, beneficial to us if it is a, a form of focus, a concentration. If we are orientating ourselves towards something beyond our daily concerns, our petty worries, all our anxieties, you know, as Jesus said, you know, look at the lilies of the field. They don't sweat it, you know, they just live their lives. So stop worrying. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but if you know that passage, you know, it says, take no thought of the morrow and so forth, what you shall put on and whatnot. That's what he's saying. He's not saying don't be a complete dummy, but we cling to all these things as though they are ultimately important, as though our happiness depended on getting something now. And holding on to things and, and, and pushing things away that we don't like. All this comes and is born out of this delusion that we are a finite, individual, ephemeral, transient self that any moment could just vanish, you know. It sets up this whole grasping and pushing away. And then this sets up all our suffering because everything we try to grasp is impermanent and everything we try to push away ultimately is going to catch up with us. You know, old age, disease, death, as the Buddha said, and those things. So it's kind of futile. So we're, you know, we're trying to, we're putting all this energy into doing something that's ultimately going to turn out to be futile. That is our suffering. But when we focus beyond, when we can start to let that go, even for the period of a prayer, let's say, we can see for ourselves it's okay. This is the beginning of learning detachment. Detachment by the way, in the mystical terms, does not mean being stoical about what's going on around you. That's really uh, a, a self-defense. I'm not going to allow myself to get upset. I'm not going to allow myself to get involved because I'll be hurt. But detachment in mystical sense means literally being able to let go of things when they go. So if you have a cat that's getting old, and then the cat gets old and the cat dies. It doesn't mean you shouldn't love the cat. And a lot of people take it that way. If I love this cat too much, boy, I'm really going to suffer when it dies. So I will just close down my heart and I won't love this cat. But if you open your heart and you're completely with the cat, but you're not grasping the cat as though it belonged to you, as though it was a possession, and you're not relying on the cat to make you happy and keep you happy, you're willing to let the cat go when the cat goes, fine. You'll be sad, but you won't suffer. It'll be a sweet kind of sadness. It'll be just the sadness you feel when, you know, you purposely go out and buy a CD for a sad music because you feel like feeling sad. And you put it on. You spend a lot of money to have that feeling. So this business of detachment and letting go is much easier if we have something that is beyond all this that we can temporarily attach ourselves to. God, Shiva, whatever term you want to use, the great spirit really doesn't matter. Something that we sense still seems to be other than us, but something that we sense is so great, so beautiful. And then if we continue to put our attention on that and we continue in these even just little moments to let go, 
we start to actually sense this reality. And we will still, if we're on this path of devotion, we will still think of it in terms of God. I mean, that's the word we'll use, but we'll start to see, oh my gosh, I never thought God was like this. No, God isn't a big daddy in the sky with a long gray beard. God is a kind of presence here. I can almost taste it. I can almost, you know, it's so close and yet invisible. Invisible because why? It has no boundaries. It has no limits. How could God be visible as ultimately the ground of everything? You feel it. And you then see the beauty of God shining through this very cosmos. We let our minds relax a little bit. We're not grasping and, and thinking just in terms of how this is going to affect me. This is why we go on vacation. Hopefully, you leave your work behind, your mind relaxes, and then you see the beauty of nature around you. And you think, oh, that was wonderful. I'll go back and work another uh, 11 months and two weeks so that I save enough money so I can take even a better vacation for two weeks next year. Why not start taking vacations now? I don't mean not go to work. I mean take a mental vacation, start to let go. If we have a not only just an idea, an image of God, but if that leads us into experiences, actual experiences that transcend our petty little concerns, then the world starts to open up to us a little bit. The cosmos starts to open up to us. Then that sparks more devotion. Naturally, you can't work up a lot of devotion if you don't feel it. Oh, but you want more. And so you're willing to let go more and more. And then you feel, I'm talking from Bhakti's point of view, you actually feel this as a kind of love. And love is an interesting word in English, because in English it has so many meanings. You know, it ranges from everything, something that's very possessive and grasping, we confuse it with lust a lot, to something that is the sweet, open, uh, all-embracing, accepting quality. Not even necessarily an emotion, a strong emotion. The way we can love children or the way we can love animals, even though they are bad. But we accept that. That is part of who they are. And that arouses love. And so when bhaktis talk about the love of God, they're not just uh, necessarily thinking about the love of a uh, like a parent, that might be a, a crude way to begin, but it's this sense of a love that's calling us and it's calling love out of us. And then we begin to see, sense, experience, I should say, something. This fundamental truth. Our problem is our self in the small sense, our self and its selfishness. It's the, the situation in a certain sense is exactly the reverse of what we believe it to be. We believe our happiness depends on getting more for this self. And we start to learn through experience, actually our happiness comes from letting go more of this self. And then we are experiencing the truth. There is no self. 
And another way to describe the ultimate reality then is totally selfless. That's a, a philosophical statement. There is, the, the ultimate reality is not a self in any way or manner or shape that we think of a self. It is selfless. And it is selfless in the moral sense of the word, if you like. It has no agenda. It's not demanding anything of us. It doesn't need anything from us. It's just, then that's why I feel this love, the love of selflessness. It's just this outpouring of love. Just everywhere in the cosmos, just all this radiant love. And we access that by imitating it. So this is why a, a lot of the great, particularly the great bhakti teachers, but all the great teachers, live a life of total selflessness. <clears throat> Jesus is a very good example. He's saying, here's how to live if you want to know the truth that makes you free. That's his way of putting it. So live like this, like the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Live like this. If your brother asks to walk a mile, go two miles. If someone asks for you a cup of soup, give them uh, the whole meal. Live like this. Live selflessly. Why? Because we have to experience for ourselves. It's okay to let go. We're terrified to let go. We're terrified to do this. This is why te Jesus' teachings just terrify everybody. Buddha, the same thing. In, Buddha, in Buddhism, there's no deity in, in most of Buddhism. There's, uh, and the deities that are conceived of, like in Tibetan tradition, are recognized not to be the ultimate reality, but to be just images, aspects of the ultimate reality. And there is uh, certainly devotion to these deities and to particularly your guru as an embodiment of these deities. But the main focus of devotion in Buddhism is other beings, it's the same idea here. Other beings give us a chance to practice selflessness. This is why there's tremendous emphasis in Buddhism, compassion, compassion. You cannot get to the truth without compassion. Selflessness, because that is the truth in action. The more we do this, the more detachment we have in the mystical sense. Detachment, literally, not being attached to how things arise and pass away. The Taoists put it quite beautifully. It's transmuting with all things as they transmute. We don't, we don't hang on to anything, even ourselves, our bodies. And in that letting go, in that stopping this clutching and grasping and so forth, this, uh, to use a Buddhist way of putting it, this spaciousness opens up. When Buddhists talk about emptiness, which they do a lot, uh, one meaning is a very technical sense. Things are empty of selfhood. There's no anything in there for us to grasp onto. But they also mean it in the sense of this uh, quality of the ground of reality is totally empty, but not like a vacuum. It's full of what? Compassion. Radiance, love, just the way the Christian mystics conceive of God, or the Sufi mystics, or the Jewish mystics. No difference. Different terminologies, but no difference. 
If you are a bhakti and you are uh, start on a bhakti path, and if that is your main path, you still have to do some janana work. And all the great bhaktis say this, and they'll talk about it this way. They'll talk about the more you know God, the more you love God. And the more you love God, the more you want to know God. And the way you know God is to know yourself. And the way you know yourself is to be able to spot, oh, here I am clinging. Here I am holding on. And then say, okay, hold my breath. What will happen if I let go here? Oh, not only does the sky not fall in, the sky opens up. And it's full of love and beauty. The sky of the mind, the sky of the heart. So bhaktis do specific practices to see specific things. And a very good example of this is St. Francis, who undertook a practice of serving lepers. And he writes about this. He says he did not start this practice to serve lepers because he had any love for lepers. They disgusted him. (laughs) He found them repulsive with their no fingers and pus and sores and so forth. He was frightened of them because in those days they thought leprosy was far more contagious than it actually is. That's why he took up the practice. It's a lesson to be learned from this. They were waiting around to, well, I'll practice love and compassion when I feel like it. Well, it's not going to be a very powerful practice. And then he said, in the practice, through the practice, he learned to confront those veils and barriers that Gershom Sholem talked about in himself and to lift them. And God transformed his experience of lepers from one of revulsion and disgust into the sweetest love and joy. And there's also another lesson in this about our delusion and about the world. What we think in the world is ugly and awful and so forth, that is our mask. If we saw it aright, we would see it as all being a divine self-disclosure, and we would see it all being beautiful, and it would give us joy. And then we get to a certain place in the path like this, and then we start to see that God is not just this invisible ground beyond everything, what mystics call the transcendent aspect of God, but God is actually the beingness of everything as it's arising now. So the Hindus uh, talk about, I, they say namaste, and a, a rough translation is I, I honor the divine within you. Not just human beings, but cats and dogs and stones and grasses. Zen Buddhists go out and preach to the grasses. Oh my gosh, this is marvelous. And then we start having a sense of gratitude. I mean, this is just all a free gift, isn't it? Isn't that the truth of this whole cosmos? Did you do anything to earn the the trees out there, the blossoms, the stars, the moon? It's all just a free gift. We can only talk in these somewhat anthropomorphic terms. You see, even when I say it's a, a free gift of God, that's still raising these images of somebody up there dispensing gifts. 
But this is a limitation of our language. It's just a way of trying to describe that experience we're having. And so our experience starts to transcend even our ability to talk about it. All the language of theology becomes poetry. We don't even have to be attached to our doctrines and our teachings. And we don't have to go kill our neighbors because they have a different kind of poetry. We can appreciate that and be grateful for that. Gratitude is one of the marks of a heart opening up. So you taste this reality, you see this reality, you experience this reality, you experience the joy of it. And you want this so bad, you want it more than anything. Like that disciple who got dunked by his guru. You arrive at this place. You can't, uh, you know, generate this by will, this wantingness. It becomes the priority in your life. Now you really want to know. Now you have, perhaps we could put it this way, there's one last separation, one last distinction. That's between you and God. Because you see, all this is God, that that's not separate from God. This cosmos isn't separate from God. There's still there's this feeling that I am still the worshiper of God. And actually, the Hindu bhaktis talk about it. You get to a point where this is so sweet just to be the worshiper of God, you don't want to give this up. But if you go all the way, you have to see even that separation, that boundary, that distinction between you and God itself isn't real. Just imaginary. And this is why Rumi, a great Sufi, he wrote about God. He said, God, and he's now talking about God as people believe in God. He says, God is an idol before whom all other idols run, like prisoners at the cry of freedom. And what he means is, if we become devoted to Allah, as, even as a, an image, even as, you know, uh, something that Allah isn't because it's something we're still conceiving, feeling, experiencing as an other. Using this, all our other mm -hmm. idols, and this is our problem, we're all idol worshippers. We worship stuff that isn't worth worshipping. They all run. They fall away. But then the time comes for even the smashing of God. And that is the final step of enlightenment. So that's where the path of devotion takes you, and it takes you exactly the same place as the path of Janana, in which you just keep realizing, oh, there's no boundary here. Oh, there's no boundary here. But it focuses on and it uses this attraction, this love, to pull you, if you like, through the path, like a magnet. Another beautiful image of Rumi is Allah is like a flame and and we're like moths, and the moths are attracted to the flame, and then they're burned up in the flame. And that's, you know, that's what religion's all about. So I don't know if that was helpful in trying to put devotion in a perspective on this mystical path. Any questions? When you're comparing bhakti and jnana yoga, uh -huh. I think it's I know you're just using the terms, but I think it's a misrepresentation of what I understand of Hinduism, which is that there's lots of paths. There's Shinana Yoga, yeah. There's Raja Yoga, which is making it through meditation. There's part of the Raja Yoga, which is Hatha Yoga. 
just reaching out through the physical body, balancing it. There's karma yoga, that's reaching that through doing good deeds or ceremonies and ceremonies. There's, um, you know, in each, as far as my understanding of Hinduism, is the idea that we all have different personalities. And we choose the one that matches our own personality, that's all. And they're all paths up the same mountain. So it's not a dichotomy. It's not you use one path, not the other. But they're all part of each other. And that's how we get there. You're right. There are many kinds of yoga in Hindu tradition. I think there are seven. It depends on how you count. The um, Bhagavad Gita has basically three yogas. Karma, yoga, bhakti, and janana. Some of you break up into four major categories. They're all schemes where it's broken up to seven or nine. Each of those has other yogas and so forth. So these are just different ways of slicing up the same pie. But you're right, and they aren't distinct. That's why I try to say they're spectrums. Uh, if you look at Janana and Bhakti, we can think of them as poles on a spectrum, and people find their way along the path between these poles. But just, these are just ways of thinking about it, organizing it in our minds so we're not confused. Any other comments or questions? Is uh, You said that detachment was to let go of a thing when it goes. Yes. And, well, let me say one other thing. It's not even to grasp it when it arises. <laughs> yeah, but, so, yes, yeah. if you are grasping it, then to let it go. Then, is that the opposite of awareness? I don't know how you'd be using awareness in that context. Well, like, or, or attention. Like... Um, I'm trying to pay attention to what's going on in the room. Mm. <clears throat> well, there is a way that attention can sort of grasp. I mean, this gets very subtle. But, but generally speaking, it's not the opposite at all. And you don't know if you are grasping or not unless you have awareness, attention. See, without awareness, uh, we don't know when we're attached to things. And a lot of practices, especially ascetic sorts of practices, are designed to bring to our attention what we are attached to. So people say things like, I'm not really attached to money. All right. You see, you can't tell whether someone, whether there's an attachment or not because somebody has something. I mean, I could have tons of money and not be attached to it, or I could have very little money and be very attached to that, you know. So if you want to know what you're attached to, a, a very good way is to give it up for a while. That's drawing your attention and your awareness to what is happening. That practice, do you see? So in that sense, there is there is sometimes in I think maybe what you're talking about in, in some more advanced meditation practices, there's a tendency of the mind's trained to let's say watch the breath, and there's a tendency for actually the mind to sort of try to grasp at the breath. It's not awareness that's actually doing it, which are they're very subtle forms of attachment and grasping arising in awareness. And again, our job is to become more aware so that we say, oh, even this little subtle ripple of grasping, just let it go. Let it pass away. So is attachment, if you're speaking in terms of time, like past, present, future, attachment will work more in, in terms of past and future? Depends on the person, but in general, yes, our minds are are 
skipping over the present. So we're anticipating what's going to happen in the future. That's not an attachment to a thing. It's an attachment to an image of what we'd like to happen. That's totally imaginary. And so when the world uh, doesn't unfold that way, uh, it unfolds different from the way we imagine it. We, we hang on to how we imagined it, and now we suffer because there's a dichotomy. We wanted it, oh, we wanted it to be nice and sunny when we went to Hawaii and saved up all that money, and we get there and there's rain. That's terrible, you know? So we suffer. So we're really attached to an expectation, an image here. Or we're attached to things that are past or are passing away. I mean, the gross examples of that are, you know, like people who sit around, you know, remembering the good old days when they were high school sports stars. <laughs> you know, they're still, they gather all their trophies there on the mantelpiece, or they were cheerleaders or whatever they were. You know, that's the, the great glory days, and their minds keep going back to the past, you know. So there's a lot of emphasis, in the, particularly in the early stages of the spiritual path of, you know, sort of being in the present, recognizing that these, the future and the past are really totally imaginary. So when we find our minds, you know, it's not that you should never think about the past, but, you know, your mind dwelling on the past and so forth and sort of living in the past, you bring awareness to that and you say, oh, this is, I'm, I'm living in an imaginary world here. And you allow those thoughts to dissolve away, or you're you're spending all your time waiting to get to Hawaii. It's a beautiful day today, you know. Maybe if you get to Hawaii, it's raining, you know. So uh, you allow that to dissolve away. But then, when you get to the present, there's also a more subtle form of attachment. You don't want this moment to ever go. This is such a beautiful moment. Oh, I'm looking at this sunset. Here I am on Hawaii, and it's just the way it was in the picture postcards. You know what I mean? And here I am, and I'm walking down the beach, and oh, and there's that sunset. Oh, yes, this is the South Pacific. Here I am. Oh, I hope it never ends. <laughs> I'll tell you a very, very quick little story, a wonderful story that illustrates this. Um, this is written by Ray Bradbury. And it's a story about an American salesman or somebody from Chicago who just loved Picasso. Picasso was, his, in his eyes, the greatest artist that ever lived, and he loved Picasso and so forth. So finally, he saves up his money, and uh, he convinces his family to go to Spain. Picasso lives in Spain at this time. And they're not interested in Picasso, but they're going to rent this little beach house and spend uh, you know, two weeks in Spain on the beach. But he's chosen a beach a house that's close to the town Picasso's you know, supposed to be living in at this point. This is when Picasso's an old man. And they get there, and, you know, he really doesn't expect to see Picasso, but whenever they go into town and the cafes, he's always looking around, and he never sees Picasso, but that's okay. Everybody's having a great time. It's beautiful, you know. And the last day, they're getting ready to pack up and go get the uh, train to back to Madrid in the airport or whatever. And he gets up in the morning to go for a stroll on the beach, and he sees this old man with a stick down the beach, just, you know, doodling in the sand like that. And it's these centaurs and nymphs and goats and bulls and all those stuff Picasso did so well. And here's this fantastic mural along the sand, and he realizes this is Picasso just doodling in the sand. And then he thinks, I've got to get my camera. I didn't bring my camera with me. See, this is attachment to the present. So then he, and he looked, you know, his house is back up some stairs, you know, and this and that. And he realized the tide is coming in. And if he runs now back up to the house and gets his camera, by the time he comes back, it's all going to be washed away. And he's just thrown, he's in a panic. What's he going to do? And how could he not have brought his camera? And then he realizes, let go. Just let go. 
So he just walks along the beach with Picasso, this old man, they don't say a word, just watching this marvelous art unfold and then the tide coming and washing it away. So that's a story about how we can actually even be attached to the present and what it might mean to even let go of the present. So the Buddha has a wonderful saying, let go of the past, let go of the future, and let go of the present, and proceed to the opposite shore with a free mind. Opposite shore is a metaphor in Buddhism for going to nirvana or whatever. Is that helpful? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a similar story, but it really happened to a friend of mine, this lady. And she was in Austin, and she was coming out of a restaurant and going along a hotel uh, down, down by the river. And uh, she looked, and in the, in, the, in the bottom floor of this hotel was a, was a gym, a workout room. And she looked, and Clint Eastwood was in there looking at <laughs> <laughs> He was doing a movie, you know. <clears throat> she said, she stopped and looked at him, you know, and she said, he looked up, and she said, uh, and, and, you know, I thought, well, this is it, you know, this is, you know. This is Nirvana, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is, and, and, you know, she was, she was thinking, and, and Clint Eastwood motioned to somebody, and a guy came over there, you know, and he said something to me. He said, she's saying, oh, my God, he's going to come out here. What am I going to do? I'm married, you know. <laughs> and the, guy, the guy walked over, and he put the blinds down. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good opportunity for spiritual practice. If she'd been on a path, boy, that's rich. <laughs> Very rich. (laughs) All right. So uh, we'll bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And until we see you again, peace to you all.